You'll want to turn to the book of Job. It is roughly in the middle of the Old Testament. If you open your Bibles in the middle, usually you'll end up in either Psalms or Isaiah. Either way, you're going to go left. If you get to uh, too far in there to Kings and Chronicles, you've probably gone too far. But you will want to turn there. And while you're finding uh, the book of Job, I'm just uh, say we've uh, been praying this week. Uh, Brian, it's good to see you upright and not in the hospital. Glad you're doing well. Uh, the Dykes got good news and a clear scan, and we're grateful for that. And we've been praying for a complete recovery uh, for Emily Baker. And so the Lord is uh, being gracious to our church, and uh, that is something for which we can be thankful. Uh, as Andy said, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Job. This is uh, one of the books that I have never preached, which is why we're doing it. I'm sort of checking off the ones I haven't gotten to uh, before. And this first chapter of Job sort of sets the stage for what's going to be a fairly lengthy divine drama uh, that we will get to see uh, over the coming weeks. So uh, hopefully you have now found the book of Job or gotten to it on your device and uh, we'll be reading chapter 1 verses 1 through 22. As always, listen carefully as this is God's word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of Job this morning to learn more about things we don't want to learn more about. Lord, we know this book teaches us of suffering, and we hate suffering. We know this book teaches us about faith, and we know we don't have enough of that. And this book scares us, because we think you might treat us as you treated Job, and we don't think we can handle that. So as always, open our ears to hear and our minds to understand, and calm our hearts, and build our faith, and enable us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the story of a man called Job, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen, and amen. One of the better movies that Joanne and I have seen in the last few years is the 2015 Swedish film, A Man Called Ova. It's recently been remade into an American version starring Tom Hanks, which I haven't seen yet. Now, the movies are based on a 2013 book by Frederick Bachman. And Bachman got his inspiration for this book after reading an article about a man named Ova, who had a fit while buying tickets at an art museum. And Bachman instantly related to this man that he claimed to be, quote, not great at talking to people. So he started writing blog posts under the heading, I am a man called Ova. And he wrote about all of his pet peeves and annoyances, and eventually he turned the blog into a book, making Ova the lead character. And in both the original book and the movie, Ova is a 59-year-old widower, severely depressed after losing his wife, Sonia, to cancer. He is a classic curmudgeon. 
The kind of man who points at people he dislikes as if they were burglars caught outside his bedroom window. He has staunch principles, strict routines, and a very short fuse. Nobody likes him. People call him the bitter neighbor from hell. However, behind the cranky exterior, there is a story and a sadness. You see, Ova decides that he can no longer live without Sonia. So he wants to kill himself. But every time he tries, he gets interrupted by his unsuspecting neighbors who have just moved in next door. His new neighbors are an Iranian immigrant named Parvana, her Swedish husband, Patrick, and their two very talkative daughters, Rebecca and Sarah. I mean, Sepeda and Nasanin. <laughs> and altogether, they drive over nuts, which actually isn't hard to do. So they move in, not knowing how to back up their U-Haul trailer, and they accidentally flatten Ova's mailbox. And after that, it's just one calamity after another. It's pretty funny, and I won't give away the ending, other than to say I got upset because the first time Joanne asked me to watch this movie, she didn't tell me that it would make me cry, which is also not hard to do. So when I started planning out this sermon series, I couldn't help but think of Ova as I was considering Job. Hence the title of the series, A Man Called Job. Job's life is one calamity after another, but none of them are funny. He's not trying to kill himself, but his very talkative neighbors harass him to the point where he probably wants to just to shut them up. Job's life utterly falls apart. And though we would understand if he became the bitter neighbor from hell, he doesn't. And so while there are some similarities between a man called Ova and a man called Job, there are more significant differences. So let's get started. Like a man called Ova, this book is filled with tragedies and calamities. There are so many things that just seem so unfair. There are the friends who are trying to be helpful, but really aren't, and there's all the big questions, many of which they bring up, that Job confronts us with. Why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to me? Or to put it more theologically, how do you explain the presence of evil? Is God really sovereign? Why are there so many things in this life that seem to be unfair? Why would God allow fill in the blank? And we need to be honest and face the kind of world in which we live. Why does God allow these things? Why does he seem to do nothing to put these things right? And why, on the other hand, do people who couldn't care less about God or justice seem to thrive? Now, it's written in contemporary style, but listen to the angry voice of an honest man from long ago who struggled with this same unfairness. He said, why do the wicked have it so good? Live to a ripe old age and get rich. They get to see their children succeed, get to watch and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are peaceful and free from fear. 
They never experience God's disciplining rod. Their bulls breed with great vigor and their calves calve without fail. They send out their children to play and watch them frolic like spring lambs. They make music with fiddles and flutes, have good times singing and dancing. They have a long life on easy street and die painlessly in their sleep. That is actually the voice of Job in a paraphrase of chapter 21. And he says, let's be honest. Let's have no more of this pious make-believe that it all goes well for good people and bad for bad people. That's not true. Look around the world. It's just not true. By and large, people who could not care about God live happier, longer lives with less suffering than do believers. Why? What kind of God runs a world like this? And it's hard questions like that that face us in the book of Job. But there's two ways of asking those hard questions. We can ask them as armchair questions, or we can ask them as wheelchair questions. We can ask them as armchair questions as if we're somehow remote or removed from suffering. When we're treating the problem of evil and the issue of suffering as mere intellectual exercises. And as Shakespeare once said, he jests at scars that never felt the wound. But we grapple with God with wheelchair questions when we do not take suffering lightly. When we ourselves or those we love are hurting. And as you will see, Job asks wheelchair questions. This book is not merely academic. It is both about people and for people who know suffering. Job is a staggeringly honest book. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think, not just what they say publicly, but what they say behind closed doors and in whispers. It knows what we say in our tears. And if we listen to it carefully, Job will touch us, trouble us, and unsettle us at a deep level. If you think God is going to bless you with health and wealth, then this book just might destroy your faith. If you think God is going to make you feel good, like some sort of divine therapy, then this book just might destroy your faith. Of course, if you think the Bible is about blessing you or making you feel good, you obviously haven't been hanging around here very long. After all, we just finished a sermon series on wanderers and prodigals, which, if nothing else, revealed that I like to make you cry. Also, not hard to do. It's true, and you did. And hopefully your tears moved you to pray. This book is somewhat different, thank God, right? First of all, this is a long Although we're going to get through it in four months, Job is 42 chapters. And the point being that God, in his wisdom, has given us a long book, and he has done so for a reason. Because when the suffering question and the where is God question and the what kind of God questions are asked from the wheelchair, they cannot be answered on a postcard. When we ask what kind of God allows this kind of world, 
God gives us a 42-chapter book. This is far from saying the message of Job can be summarized in a tweet or in a text. Here it is. Not at all. Instead, God says, come with me on a journey. And it's a journey that will take time. There is no instant answer. Job cannot be distilled. It is a narrative with a slow slow pace and long delays. There is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no message of Job in a nutshell. God has given us a long road with no bypass. We need to read it, we need to read it all, and we need to read it slowly. By far the bulk of the book of Job is an extended poem. It's not just the genre of poetry, it's considered to be an epic poem. There's a section at the beginning and a section at the end that's written as prose, but the rest of it is poetry. And if you were to ask me why we're considering the book of Job, I don't think I could do any better than to point you to Satan's question in today's passage. If you look again at verse 9, he says, Does Job fear God for no reason? That's the central question of the book of Job. Is Job a man of God only because of the many blessings that he enjoys from God? Or does Job fear God for God's own sake? So why study the book of Job? Well, we should, first we should study Job because if your faith is nothing more than a fair weather faith, a Christianity that only lives in the sunshine, what happens when the storm hits? and the shadows fall, obscuring the light. Is your fear of God resilient and enduring, even in those seasons when you're forced to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Will you be able to say with the psalmist, for example, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, Life may crumble around me. All my outward blessings may shrivel and die. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the great lesson of the book of Job. This is divinely inspired resiliency training for the believer. And it provides that training for us not simply by exploring Job's example, but by taking us into this deep, impenetrable mystery of suffering itself, the reality of evil in God's world. It is an unflinching look at some of the unanswerable questions that every righteous sufferer finds him or herself asking of God. What does this mean? Did I do something wrong? Why is this happening? Where are you, God? And we're going to see, as Job takes us into this dark abyss of grief and suffering and loss, meeting us in those depths time and time again is someone else. We meet not just Job, the righteous sufferer, but we are going to see that we will meet the Lord Jesus Christ, who at the cross, in the midst of the horror of God-forsakenness, asks his own why 
question. Why have you forsaken me? At the heart of the response of the book of Job to our sharpest trials is more than a robust doctrine of the sovereignty of God, although that's certainly there, and that's part of how Job uh, helps us weather the storms of affliction. And sometimes in our suffering, it's helpful to have those sufferings named and then faced as honestly as we're going to see them named and faced here in the book of Job. And yet there's even more than that. As we face the problem of evil and the suffering of God's people, at the heart of the response of the book of Job, we are going to see the Lord Jesus, the ultimate righteous sufferer. And that's where this book is going to fix our attention as it seeks to cultivate resilient faith. So this morning we're turning our attention to Job chapter 1. That's a long way before we even get to the first verse. So let's start with a look at Job's character. If you have the outline, that's the first blank there, Job's character. In verse 1, our author asserts that Job's a good man. And in the following verses, he describes his greatness. He says, there's a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, meaning his birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So here's a picture of the good life and the currency of the age. Great wealth in family and possessions, high social status in the community, we put it in modern terms, we might speak of someone having a loving family while being a CEO with thousands of employees with a penthouse in Manhattan and a horse farm in Middleburg. They'd be a generous philanthropist, an elder in their church, one whose advice was sought by governors and senators and who had their own podcast with a multitude of Twitter followers. What else could you want? By any standard, Job is a great man. And in a sense, this is what you would expect. A man of great character before God should be blessed with abundance, right? You get the impression that Job's, uh, that Job's goodness is the cause of his greatness. Shouldn't piety lead to prosperity? But we're left with a question. If Job is great because he's good... Will he continue to be good when he's no longer great? Will he continue to be good when he's no longer great? We get the final illustration in verses 4 and 5. After each of these family feasts, probably uh, birthday parties, Job would make it his habit to 
sacrifice a burnt offering for his children, just in case. Perhaps, God forbid, my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Surely this is a mark of piety, but also might suggest that something isn't quite right in the way Job approaches God, that his anxiety outweighs his faith, that maybe a fear is divorced from trust. After all, does Job suppose that offering sufficient sacrifices, he can protect himself and those he loves from suffering? Such is the heart of Job. He's mindful of what it means to be righteous before God, even in the hearts of his children. And this is the man whose life is about to be turned upside down. And that comes with the arrival of Job's challenger. Job's challenger, verses 6 through 11. All of a sudden, the story goes in a completely different direction. The setting shifts from earth to heaven, and we listen in on this dramatic uh, interchange that Job himself never gets to hear. Starting at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then, verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So here we have some sort of heavenly council as a company of angels called here the sons of God appear before the Lord ready to do his bidding. But the verse ends with a rather foreboding manner, we see, and Satan also came among them. Who is this Satan figure? The Hebrew word Satan means adversary or accuser. The Greek translation is diabolos or devil. He is the accuser. And so along with this angelic counsel comes one who stands against God's people in some way. And in verse 7, it's the Lord who initiates this exchange. He says to his adversary, from where have you come? What have you been up to? What's your business here? Satan answered the Lord, said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. We get the impression that the earth, not heaven, is his designated sphere of activity. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of the devil as the prince of this world three times in the Gospel of John. The Apostle Peter's words fit well here. 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Satan's up to no good. He's looking for someone to accuse, someone to subvert, someone to undermine faith in the goodness and glory of God. But God begs to differ. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, 
There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Essentially, he's saying, I know Job's heart. He's faithful and loyal, a man of integrity, real godliness. He is truly my servant, God says. There is none like him. In all your efforts to discover if there is any such thing as a genuine believer, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan appears to be unimpressed. Verse 9, does Job fear God for no reason? And then he says, verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Think about this. This creature is talking to God Almighty And he says, he will curse you to your face. One commentator calls it the cynic's taunt. All this pious sanctity you see in your man Job, it's just a show. It's all pretense. He doesn't care about you, God, and your glory and your majesty, because it's all about him and how he reaps all the benefits of his fake religiosity. Sheep, cattle, camels, he he has it all. But if you take that away, he's going to want nothing to do with you. And so Satan, true to his role as the accuser, points out to God what he sees or what he perceives to be a chink in Job's armor. He questions whether Job's faith will survive the suffering that he's been determined to avoid through his sacrifices and the security provided by his great wealth, all his possessions, this gigantic herd of livestock. So what are we to make of this taunt? Well, first of all, if you think about it, isn't it true that many people around the world are hearing a message that promises just what Satan is describing? That putting your faith in God is simply a means to health and wealth. Put your faith in God and he will be at your beck and call. All you have to do is ask. If you're poor, God can make you rich. If you're sick, God can make you well. And that is a popular message in places where there's a lot of poor and sick people. And why wouldn't they believe it? Or us, or Job. After all, we're his beloved children, aren't we? What father, if he asks for a, uh, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Ask, and you will receive. If you only have enough faith, it will be all yours. And of course, the preachers of this prosperity gospel will show you by their extravagant lifestyle with their fancy cars and big houses and private jets that it works for me and it can work for you too. Now, most of us think we're a little too sophisticated to swallow the health and wealth gospel. And truth be told, we're wealthy enough already certainly in comparison to most of the world. But we have our own version of the prosperity gospel in the form of the therapeutic gospel. The reward we count on is not material, but emotional. What Jesus promised is not objective wealth, but subjective well-being. Invite Jesus into your heart, and he will fill you up with peace and joy and hope. He will give you an abundant life. And we have lots of ways to define that abundance. 
Put your faith in Christ and he'll give you the life that you want, your best life now. No hassle guarantee. We don't fear God for no reason. We fear God for the blessings he gives. How right is Satan? How right is Satan about you? How right is Satan about Job? We're going to find out, like Job, only when we suffer. And so we're confronted with Job's calamity. Starting at verse 12, Job's calamity. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So in this opening chapter, we've seen a godly man. We've seen this cynical, satanic taunt. And now we have to look at what's possibly the most challenging part of the whole story because there is a divine gambit here. God's willingness to put Satan's claims to the test. Satan had said back in verse 11, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And then we read verse 12, the Lord said, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Did we hear that? right? Everything he has is in your hand. Go ahead. It's in your power. Bring this godly man, my servant Job, to utter ruin. Have all of his sheep and cattle and camels and servants carried away by foreign invaders, then kill all 10 of his children when the house collapses and crushes them as they're together celebrating a birthday. And that's just phase one. Because after that, we get to, we'll get to chapter 2, and we're going to see a bodily assault on poor Job. Satan gets to assail him with painful sores that will cover his whole body, and he's left to rot and sit on the ashes of a garbage heap. He's all yours, Satan. Go at it. And we'll see if you're right about my servant Job. How is this possible? How could a good... And just God possibly agree to such a deal? Well, let's be clear. First of all, Satan is the bad guy in all of this. He's the actual agent of destruction. It's his hand that afflicts Job. Some try to say that gets God off the hook, that Job is wrong to complain to God because it's Satan that he ought to revile and rail against. It's way too easy. Laying the blame for Job's 
uh, distress solely on Satan makes no sense to the rest of the book. Because as we'll see, Job's complaint throughout the book is with God, not with Satan. Job knows God to be ultimately responsible for what happens to him. And that assumption is nowhere contested throughout the book. Certainly not by God when he finally speaks for himself near the end of the book. In chapter 2, God takes direct responsibility for what happens when he says that Satan incited him against Job to ruin him. And at the end of the book, the narrator will attribute the blame solely to God. To be sure, God never acts with malicious intent, ever, but he's still in charge. Even when secondary agents like Satan act badly. And think about it, Satan must ask permission to harm Job. He has no authority on his own. God and Satan are not two equal powers vying for control of the universe. The devil exists, but as Martin Luther once said, he is God's devil. And God has him on a leash. He can only do what the Lord allows him to do. But throughout the Bible, we see that whatever evil the Lord allows, he can also use for his own good purposes. Classic example is the story of Joseph. But at a number of places in the Bible, we have what you would call dual intentions at work. In the same act, the devil can intend evil while God can intend good. So Satan brings about the suffering that Job endures, and through them, Satan intends to tempt Job to do evil by cursing God to his face. And then Satan drops out as a character in the book. And the rest of the story revolves around God's intentions in all of this. Why would he ever agree to such a bargain with the devil? A bargain that means inflicting pain on an innocent man, not to mention all the collateral death and destruction. Now, if you're troubled by God allowing the death of Job's children in this story, you're exactly where the author wants you to be. That's the point. You're supposed to be unsettled and provoked by all of this. You're exactly where Job was. Wondering how can a good and just God allow such things to happen? This challenges all of our preconceived ideas about God, just like it did of Job and his friends. We want God to act in predictably good ways. God is supposed to act in the ways that we think a good God should act. But what do we do when he doesn't? Job's an innocent man, he's a godly man. There's no justification, no reason based on any justice known to us for God to have allowed Job to be ruined. And this is exactly what the book is about. Can we hold on to God in faith? Will we fear him? Will we worship him even when our treatment seems to be a mysterious travesty of justice? Does Job fear God for no reason? Satan's question is an insulting, provocative taunt. For behind Satan's question is not only the accusation there's no such thing as a genuine believer, one who really worships God for who he is and not just for what you get out of him. And though it's presented as a challenge to Job's faith, this accusation is ultimately leveled at the credibility of God. And in this question, we find the further implication that God himself is not really worthy 
of worship for his own sake instead of just for the good gifts he bestows. This statement is an assault on the intrinsic glory of God. And God's willingness to engage in this gambit with Satan is ultimately about that, God's own glory. It's not just that Job's faith is on the line here. God's own glory is at stake. In some mysterious way, Job's worship of God in the face of all of his suffering will put God's own worthiness on public display. So how will Job respond? And what will that teach us about God? And for the very first part of that answer, we have to look to Job's confession, the last three verses. Job's confession. How does Job relate to God in the midst of this incredible trial? Well, first of all, we have to be clear. Job is not unmoved. He's he's no stoic who simply takes it without emotion. Job is deeply grieved by his loss. He immediately enters into a state of mourning. We see his grief in these ritual acts. He first hears of the disaster, verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Tearing one clothes is a common sign of grief in the Bible, and, and shaving the head is the same. So Job is no stoic. He's not unmoved by his tragic circumstances. He grieves, but his initial reaction to this is one of humble submission when he receives the mind-numbing news of one horrific event after another. We read, he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. If you've ever been to a funeral I've done or a burial I've done, you have heard those words. They're Job's words. That's faith. What more could you possibly want from someone in and such circumstances. This is piety in its purest form. It's unwavering devotion to God. It's submission to God's will. We see Job as a model believer. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He's an inspiration. And certainly, it is Job that inspired Matt and Beth Redmond, who wrote the well-known song, Blessed Be Your Name which speaks of blessing God in good times and bad, both when streams of abundance flow and when I'm found in the desert place. Through it all, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. It's a wonderful song, and it's the song that's on Job's lips. In the midst of the most extreme form of suffering we can imagine, And if the book just ended right there, we would have this lofty message. Job is past the test of faith. God can be worshipped apart from his blessings. But of course, the problem is the book doesn't end right there. There's 41 more chapters. But note, Job does not curse God, and he won't. Job never goes there, but he grieves He laments. He protests. He does so boldly, almost brazenly. But he never curses God. He never denies God's goodness 
or his worthiness to be worshipped. He never treats God as his enemy. In fact, it is Job's conviction that God is good and that God is just that creates this crisis of faith in the first place. There is so much more to come, 41 more chapters. But all of that will teach us that grief is a process. Whether it's grief of loss, grief of suffering, just whatever pain and anguish and hurt that has come into your life, it's a process. Job doesn't snap out of his lament in a moment. It's going to take time, and it will not be easy. And in this process of grief and suffering, we have to work through our pain, and we have to be honest with ourselves, and we have to be honest with God, and rest assured, God can take it. And in this depiction of our human experience of faith and trust in the face of the mysterious ways of God, the book of Job is very realistic about the struggle that we all face living in a world in which we all suffer. That's important. For in the end, a relationship, a real relationship, requires that it be the real you relating to the real God. So if that's true, what are we to make of this wonderful song? Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And the next line is, when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be your name. Can you sing that? Can you sing that even when you don't feel like it? Even when you're struggling with God and those words sound hollow in your head and in your heart? You probably can. Though I will be the first to admit there's times when I sing some of the words that are way beyond my experience. It may be hard, but I sing them anyway. My mother once said, those who sing pray twice. And so in my head I'm saying, Lord, help me experience what I'm singing. Make this true in my life. I know these words are true. And part of the difficulty with that is God does not always give us an answer, let alone the answer we want. He's not the answer man. He wouldn't be God if he just gave you the answers. Here's what he does. He gives you the ultimate question, which is in itself the answer. He says, I take suffering so seriously that I sent my son into the middle of it. If I could just snap my fingers and get rid of suffering without getting rid of you, would I have done that? Don't you see? Here's the question. Suffering continues because if I got rid of all evil in the world, I'd be getting rid of you. And then God answers his own question. The only way I can get rid of evil and not get rid of you is if I send my son into the middle of it. Christ experienced real innocent suffering. He's the only innocent sufferer. He's the ultimate innocent sufferer. He's the one Job points to, the true innocent sufferer. He cried out like Job cried out. And the reason God didn't condemn Job for charging God uh, with sin is that God charges himself with sin. The entire book of Job is going to point us to Jesus because it's the only answer. Now Job still has a long way to go. 
his initial burst of praise is going to turn into a prolonged lament. But he won't give up. And neither should we. Although as we shall see, persevering in faith doesn't always come without a fight. And so we need Job to get us ready for that battle. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to remember your goodness, your greatness, your worthiness. Sometimes we act as though you need to justify yourself to us, which reveals both our failure to trust and obey your word. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, if anyone here this morning is overwhelmed by the struggles of life, by suffering, by our own fear, by our own insecurities, enable them to draw near to you so that you will draw near to them and build their faith. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from a man called Job. Draw us ever closer to the one who is the ultimate innocent sufferer on our behalf. Draw us closer to him, your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.